Okay, if you found Mark 7, why don't you stand with me, and we'll read together God's Word. Man, I got a passage ahead of me. Mark 7, beginning in verse 24, is an odd passage, to put it mildly. The way Jesus responds to this woman in this passage will leave a great many of you puzzled. And by God's grace, I'll seek to make sense of it. So hear now the words of our God, as recorded by the writer Mark, in Mark 7, beginning in verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, she heard of him. And she came and she fell down at his feet. Now this woman, she was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And it says she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, just let this hit you, it ought to. Jesus says, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home, and she found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Why don't you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, I am asking that you would come now, and by the power of your Spirit, help me make sense of this text to your people. I pray that your Spirit would, in other words, speak to your people. And would you use me in spite of me to do this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. How often do you find that what you were looking for, that, that thing you were looking for, how often do you find that you end up finding it where you least expected it? Any of you guys spent a solid five minutes tearing apart the house trying to find your car keys only to realize they were left in the ignition of the car? <laughs> or how many of you, this is almost a daily occurrence, you're looking everywhere for your cell phone only to realize it's in your pocket <laughs> the whole time? I have been wanting to wake up and live the American dream where I open my front door and I look out and behold a luscious sea of green on my front lawn. And so my wife and I invested heavily to attempt to do this. We paid somebody to do what they do to make it green. We did the work it takes to make it green. And this weekend as I stood out there with my cup of coffee, it was a sea of brown. But do you want to know where I found green? I mean, we're talking vigorous green, green. This is like Crayola crayon green. It's the growths in the cracks of my driveway. <laughs> you find things, isn't it, where you least expect it. It's funny because the Bible actually patterns itself off of this. God judges Noah, tells Noah to send his family to spread out over all the world, and he chooses one man that he is going to make the one through whom he keeps his promise to save the world. Who's the man? It's not the strongest, the brightest, the greatest. It is this wicked idol or idolater, idol maker, a man named Abram of Ur. Not what you would expect. Who's the one the Lord uses to bring salvation to his people in the conquest of Canaan? It's the prostitute, Rahab. 
Who's the one that God describes as a man after my own heart? It is not King Saul, who's a head and shoulder above all the rest. It's the runt of the litter, David himself, that the Lord uses not only to slay Goliath, but to slay all of his enemies and to reign as the prototypical king of God's kingdom. Have you noticed that the Lord often does what the inspired Apostle Paul so eloquently said in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 27? When he reminds us that God uses the weak to shame the strong. He uses the foolish to shame the wise. Little surprise then. Little wonder that when Jesus, throughout these accounts in the Gospel of Mark, as he goes throughout all the land of Israel looking for faith, little wonder that he finds faith at last where you would least expect it. You see, in Matthew, um, forgive me, in Mark chapters 1 through 7, Jesus is all over the known territory of Israel. He's in the area of Jerusalem. He's in the Jordan Valley. He spends chapter after chapter around the region of Galilee, ministering to the masses, and in particular rubbing shoulders, bumping elbows with the ones that you would expect to demonstrate faith in him, the most religious elite of the day, those who knew the word the best, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. He expected, wouldn't you expect, if anybody were to understand the message, it would be they. And yet, in this text, we find Jesus leave for the first and only time the nation of Israel, unless you want to include when his mom and dad took him down to Egypt as an infant. And it wasn't a part of his ministry. One time in all the Bible, we see Jesus leave the boundaries of Israel. And in our text today, he goes to this region that when you read it in the passage I just read, it won't strike you unless I give you a little backstory. Did you notice it says he goes, he withdraws to a region called Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are, for lack of a better word, the belly of the beast. This is the region filled with those who do not know and do not love the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh, the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. Now, geographically speaking, this is modern-day Lebanon. So if you kind of know geography, it's just the region just north of Israel, just beside Syria and Turkey, Lebanon. You may be familiar with the major city of Beirut. Tyre and Sidon are just beneath the major, uh, the major global city, I should say, of Beirut. And Jesus finds in this most unlikely of place, faith. He finds in these dark back alleys of Tyre and Sidon that which you would never expect. Tyre and Sidon, this is not the place you'd want to go. It makes the byways of the French Quarter in New Orleans or all the back alleys of San Francisco blush at what would have transpired in these regions. For this was a place that was not only where you would not expect, it's filled with people that you would never expect to have faith. The word the Bible uses is Gentiles. That means they had the wrong religion. These were the people that were idol worshipers. They would worship this God with horrific practices, practices that I cannot describe in this mixed company. It makes the most grotesque things you see on the news pale in comparison. This was, in other words, the last place you would expect to find faith, the last people you would expect to find faith. And in particular, we meet one that I know when you read it, it wouldn't shock you, but in this day and time, the very fact that he finds faith 
in a woman would have been remotely scandalizing at that time, for it was rare, if ever, that an adult Jewish male would even speak in public with another woman apart from his own wife. This was, in other words, a most unusual circumstance. She came from the wrong pedigree. This was not the type of person you'd want to be around. The Bible describes her as a Syrophoenician. Phoenicia is another, another word for the region of Lebanon today. They got conquered by Syria, so they got this little hyphenated name, Syrophoenicians. These were somewhat like the Samaritans, the people of Judea, the people of Israel wanted nothing to do with the Syrophoenicians. And lo and behold, Jesus does not find faith in the scribes and Pharisees. He finds it here in the Syrophoenician woman in the belly of the beast, Tyre and Sidon itself. In fact, Ezekiel describes Tyre as the, the king of Tyre as another word for Satan himself. He literally compares Satan to the king of Tyre. This is not what you would expect. This woman had the wrong background. She had the wrong ethnicity. She was in the wrong place. She evidently had what they would have regarded as the wrong gender. She had the wrong family because she's got a child that she's embarrassed of. This little girl, it says, is taken over with an unclean spirit. Now, I am just guessing. This is not thus saith the Lord. But in all likelihood, this little girl was a part of her wicked idol-worshiping practices. And it is not too far-fetched to surmise that demonic activity entered into that home because of the grotesque practices that would have likely been involved some way, somehow. And yet, this woman, with literal blood on her hands, who would come as an idol-worshiper in this darkest of places, it is this woman who, though we find a wrong background, the wrong place, the wrong gender, the wrong, you name it, she has something right. For the thing she has that the rest of the crowd lacks is she has what the Bible calls faith. Mark doesn't use that word explicitly, but if you read Matthew's account, Matthew in Matthew 15, beginning in verse 21, he tells us this story as well. Matthew records Jesus at the end of the story saying, O woman of great faith. This Syrophoenician woman is one of a small handful of people in all the Bible who get that most glorious of declarations as one of great faith, which I think should give great hope for you. Because if faith could be found here, it truly can be found anywhere. I wonder how many of you in this room this moment sense that you are too far gone You're thinking, I don't know what you've done, and if I did, I would agree with you that you are, in other words, a lost cause. And I pray you hear me that with Christ, there are no lost causes, truly. I wonder how many of you have a so-called lost cause in your family. Maybe you have a son or daughter who has wandered and is in the far country, so to speak, and your heart breaks and you often wonder, despite years of praying, are they too far gone? And if that's you, I pray you hear me. This text should seal to your soul that nobody has finally slipped the grip of God's grace until they draw their last breath. In other words, I believe the thrust of this text ought to seal this glorious truth to my heart and yours today. Take it to the bank. Faith proves there's hope for you. The existence of a little thing called faith 
proves this. Because in Matthew, uh, forgive me, Mark 7, we see a most unlikely profile of faith. It's not the profile you would expect. You know, I love reading biographies. I got a house library filled with them. One of the reasons I love them is because every time I read a story about somebody that seems larger than life, one of these great personalities in history, every single one of them proves to have feet of clay. Every biography I read humanizes those who seem immortal, those who seem like giants. You get a little closer and you realize they're not altogether different from you and from me. And so together, let's sit at the feet of this most unlikely of converts, this most unlikely of profiles of faith, this Syrophoenician woman, and let's learn together why Jesus would have described her as one of the few who is great in faith. If you're taking notes, I want you to mark this down. The first thing I want you to observe, which you might have passed over very quickly, is great faith, having faith, it first involves this. Faith hears. I want you to fixate on that word heard of him in verse 25. Because just consider with me, how did this woman go from being such a wicked worshiper of idols to coming to Jesus? She made the change the way every single person in all of world history has. She first heard. Do you realize the Bible teaches it is impossible to come to faith apart from hearing. Paul actually tells us that explicitly. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And she, the word says in verse 26, 25, she heard of him. Now you're thinking, you know, if you live in America, virtually everybody hears of the Lord. What does this mean? Well, she heard something in particular. Matthew tells us that she actually comes to him and says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Which tells us she just didn't hear that Jesus was a healer merely. She heard something specific about him. She heard that he has something that she doesn't deserve, and which is why she cried mercy. And he is somebody that she's never met. He is the son of David. He is, in other words, the promised Messiah. And she evidently believed it. She heard. And I just want you to understand for a moment before I go any further that there is no hope for any of you if you don't hear the gospel, which is why every single Sunday you hear us proclaim it. That's why we preach the word. Do you realize why, sorry Gerald, but why this is more central than singing? The, the reason preaching is the centerpiece of the service, the reason the pulpit's in the middle of the room and not over on the side like it is in so many historic churches is because one of the great heritages of our reformed faith is that we believe the word of God is central. And when the gospel is proclaimed, a miracle happens. What does Paul say is the power of God unto salvation? My eloquence the church's comfortable chairs, or lack thereof. What is it, my friends? The gospel proclaimed is the power of God and salvation. And so take it to the bank. If you have a lost loved one that you desperately want to come to Christ, the first thing they must hear and hear and hear and hear is they must hear of Him. They've got to hear the gospel. And I believe that's why the enemy fights us in these two particular places so often. He fights you when it comes to hearing the word. You get bored. 
Your mind starts to wander because he knows this is where the magic happens. And he also fights you when it comes to proclaiming the word so that others can hear. Because he knows that's where the magic happens. So remember, faith hears. But now what? What's really interesting about this Syrophoenician woman is what she does next, which differentiates how certain people hear and don't respond the way you want, and certain people hear and do respond the way you want. Notice what she does. It says, she heard of him, and she came, and she fell down at his feet. Now, that is a graphic description of an unbelievable act of worship, reverence, and awe. This was probably a a relatively well-to-do woman. The region of Tyre was socioeconomically stronger than the region of Israel. She busted into a house, which means she probably wasn't some random girl in the street. She had the ability to come into this house unannounced. She was, in other words, somebody that you'd expect to be fairly proud. Nevertheless, she breaks in and it says she falls down in this worshipful act before the Lord. And I wonder, she heard the word and the first thing you see happen is not this Hey, I demand you do for me what you've done for everybody else. There's not this odd entitled sense. She falls to her face and she starts begging him to do something. Now, what do you count of that little sprout of faith breaking through the soil? Because how many of you have found this to be true? Perhaps you have multiple children and some of your children, upon hearing the gospel, you see faith begin to sprout and there's this reverence for God. But other children and other family members you know and love, you see this weed sprout. And it's a weed of unbelief that wilts and dies. And what's the difference here? Why is it when the seed of faith is planted by hearing, sometimes you see growth, gospel growth, and sometimes you don't? And I don't want to extend this analogy too far, but just consider with me a few factors. One of the factors is the soil of the heart. What soil was planted in this woman? What soil constituted her heart? Well, the Bible describes her as a most desperate woman. She was at her wit's end. She saw her need as great, acute. And I want you to note that throughout the history of the Bible and throughout the history of Christianity, the soil most conducive for gospel growth, for new life in Christ, is a heart of need. Indeed, the Bible teaches that if you don't see your need, you'll never want him. You will never taste and see he's good. So the soil was one of need, which is as an indicator for each of us, we ought to pray that the Lord so works in the hearts of our loved one that they come to a place of need, that the Lord would cultivate within the soil of their own soul a sense of need. But that's not enough because you probably have some children in need and nevertheless all you see are weeds of unbelief. And that's where we must step back and say, not only must we note the soil, we got to recognize the sovereignty of the gardener here. I can't cause a seed to germinate. Only God Almighty can. And he did in this woman. And how do we know it was real? How do we know? Because being green is not enough. I told you, I've got nice green growth in the cracks of my driveway. How do we know it's real? Because the first sign of growth we see break through the soil of desperation is reverence and awe. Because do you know what saves you? I'm going to say something that's going to sound heretical, so stick with me. It is not your faith that saves you. What saves you, what constitutes true gospel growth is the object of your faith. 
It's not the fact that you merely respond. It's that you rightly respond to the one who alone can save you. It is Jesus and Jesus alone, not the strength of your faith that saves. And so that's why at Hickory Grove, we don't preach manipulative sermons and have long, drawn-out, tear-filled moments of invitation because it is quite easy to manipulate a heart, to get them to respond in the moment and wilt and wither away. We preach a big God, unapologetically, week in, week out. We hold up this book, say, thus saith the Lord, and God does what only He can do. He causes all the seeds that have been sown in this room. He sovereignly causes them to germinate in the soil of desperation. And do you want to know what's the sign of growth? It is a reverence for God. So faith not only hears, faith secondly reveres. But what's really interesting about this is what happens next. She starts begging, verse 26 says. She's begging, and she's begging. She's pleading. The word literally says in the original language, she just kept on asking. She just kept on pleading. And do you want to know what Jesus' response is to her? It's awkward. Here is Jesus' reply to this woman's pleading. Isn't silence awkward? He doesn't respond. Now Mark doesn't make this as crystal clear as Matthew does. But Matthew actually tells us that she keeps begging and he does not answer her a word, Matthew says. In Mark, we can infer it because the fact that she keeps on pleading means he's not responding right away. In fact, Matthew tells us that the disciples get so annoyed with her, they want to drive her away just like they wanted to drive the children away. Now for a moment, let's just consider, why would Jesus respond in silence? Before we interrogate that question, I want to at least seal this to your heart. This text proves that when the Lord responds to you in silence, it does not mean He does not hear you. It does not mean He does not love you. It does not mean He, does not wor- he is not working for you. It does not mean what you think it means. Indeed, what we're going to see is that when the Lord responds to us as He has each of us with silence, it is this moment He is using in a most unusual way in your life. Have you found that tests or trials in your life, they tend to test you? That Patience, having to exercise patience purifies you. Have you just found this to be true? This is what the Lord is doing in this moment. He is, in other words, refining her faith. He is testing it to see, is it filled with dross? Is it filled with these impurities where it will not withstand the pressures? And she is found to have sincere, true, tested and proved faith. His silence is illuminating the sincerity of her faith. My friends, if you this moment have been pleading with the Lord, you have been praying and you feel like the Lord is meeting you with silence, my word to you is the same word I gave you a few weeks back. Just keep praying. Persevere in prayer. Persevere in faith for our Lord's arm is not short. His silence is no indication that He cares not for you. He is using this very moment of silence to do a most mighty work in your heart. And I'll prove it to you by moving to the next portion of the story. But before we leave it, don't forget, faith not only hears, it not only reveres, faith really does persevere. 
A faith that does not persevere is not a true and lasting faith. When darkness seems to hide his face, what's the old hymn say? I'll rest on his unchanging grace. Oh, I pray that would be true of you. But he does break the silence. It takes a moment. And when he does, it's not what you would expect or perhaps want. For notice, if you will, in verse 27, Jesus responds in a way that I dare say, if you don't know the context, it might strike you as racist, it might strike you as misogynistic, it might strike you as most unchristlike. Just read it. Let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the bread and throw it to the dogs. What is Jesus doing in this text? Why would Jesus say to this woman, you know what? I shouldn't give you mercy. It's not right for me to give it to you. You're a dog. I'm supposed to give this to the children. Who are the children he's describing in this little mini parable? It's the people of Israel. Jesus is, in other words, communicating in this moment who he is and who she is. He is saying, I am the God of Israel. I have come first to the Jew, then to the Greek. My mission is primarily this moment to the Jews. I have not brought my gospel to the Gentiles yet. In fact, you are, the word says, a dog. Now, the truth is, there are some that have tried to make sense of this word. In the Greek, there are two words for dog. There's kuon, which means like a mangy mutt, and there's kuarion, which is like a little puppy. And he does use the latter. But I'm sorry, though being called a mangy mutt is pretty terrible, I don't want you calling me any kind of dog. And who would? The Bible is actually replete by using the word dog in a terrible, pejorative, horrible way. Why would Jesus call this woman a dog? In this moment, Jesus is illustrating a truth that if we all take a step back, I think we'll all realize what he's doing and her response will seal it to our souls. Jesus is illustrating who she is and who he is and seeing how she'll respond. And do you notice how she responds at the beginning of verse 28? By the way, how would you respond? You hear there's this miracle worker. You believe he can do it. You come to him and he says, I'm not doing this for you. You're a dog. I got it for the kids. You might respond with offense and say, wait, 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 wait a minute. You can't talk to me this way. Or maybe you would respond not with offense, but with a defensiveness and say, no, 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 I'm not a dog. You got me all wrong. But you notice that she's not offended. She's not defensive. She's rather submissive. For her word is not wait or no, it is yes. Yes, I, I am these things. She is, in other words, illustrating what must happen in every man, woman, and child who ever demonstrates true and saving faith. For one who is saved by faith is one who first hears. It is one who reveres the God that they have heard of. It is one who perseveres in faith despite trials. And it is one who now comes to a point of confession. It is one who will say with this Syrophoenician woman, Yes, I am who you say I am. And if you think it is cruel for the Lord to call this woman a dog, how much more cruel is it for the Lord to call all of us throughout the Bible, all the plentiful words that are used to describe wicked, reprobate sinners, enemies of God. The Bible is, in other words, painting a masterful portrait of the depth of our depravity and the heights of His grace. And you must come to a point where you can confess with her and all the ages, yes, Lord, I am utterly unworthy of all of us. Oh, I pray that the Lord would bring you to a point of confession. 
But notice she doesn't just say yes. She says, yes, Lord. She is, in other words, saying, I know who I am and I know who you are. You are great and greatly to be praised. You are Lord. You have all authority and right over me. But then she, it almost appears like she does a little waltz with him. And she's the first person the Bible records who immediately understands one of Jesus' parables. Everybody else is dense and can't figure it out. She gets it immediately and notice what she says next. She says, but even, come on Jesus, even the dogs under the table get to eat the children's crumbs. Shouldn't I get some of that? What is she doing with this illustration? When I married my precious wife, Lauren, I loved everything about her. She was without flaw, save one minor blemish. This girl came with a dog. Lauren was about 21 or so when I married her, and she had had this dog, Snickers, since she was 10 years old. He was the bane of my existence. But this dog had one redeeming quality about him, but one. And it was that when we would eat dinner and I would drop something on the floor, which still happens to this day, that dog would come and eat up all the crumbs. It was a built-in vacuum cleaner. It was terrific. By the way, I need you all to pray for me because I am now being double teamed by my wife and daughter to get another dog. And they have not been successful so far, so they've lawyered up. And now their closer is one that I recommend to you. He is quite persuasive, goes by the name Clint Presley. He's working pretty hard on me right now to get a dog. And I am standing strong, but we'll see. I'm not that strong. She says, this dog, they get to eat the crumbs. Why can't I? Surely I can. She is, in other words, in this most unusual way saying, God, I know you're great, you're Lord, but I also know you're good. Yes, you may be bringing your feast to the Jews first. Yes, I know that it is your good, sovereign, perfect will to bring your gospel first to the Jews. But praise God, even the crumbs from the children, they fall down and the dogs get to eat it. So yes, I am a dog, but even a dog gets to enjoy just a crumb of your grace. How amazing is it that this woman in this moment most miraculously sees him not only as great, but as good. And I want you to consider this. The reason I'm, 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 I'm emphasizing this is because this world, indeed this very room, may be filled with people who see God as great but not good. You have this high and lofty view of God. You love theology books, but you are like the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see a great transcendent God, but you do not see His good eminence, His kindness, His caring, loving kindness, His patience, His goodness, His mercy and grace. But then, strangely enough, this world is also filled with the converse. Yes, there are those who see God as great and not good, but conversely, there are those who see God as good and not great. These are what you call theological liberals. This is most people on TV that say Jesus' ethics are great. I like the Sermon on the Mount. I like the red letters, well, at least most of the red letters in the Bible. But I don't want this great big God who makes demands on all people. What is the definition of a Christian? It is one who in the same breath can say God is great and God is good. We see this so beautifully and easily portrayed in this most unlikely of converts, this Syro. Phoenician woman. Yes, Lord, but even the kids get to eat the crumbs, or the dogs get to eat the crumbs under the kids' table. So Jesus responds, recognizing that this woman who has confessed has now 
professed, which by the way, that is an indication of true and saving faith. True and saving faith hears the gospel. True and saving faith reveres the God of the gospel. True and saving faith perseveres with this God of the gospel. It confesses and it professes. And so Jesus responds and says in verse 29 and into verse 30, for this statement, I'm going to heal your daughter. What is the words he actually uses? For this statement, you may go your way. The demons left your daughter. What would you expect that woman to do in that moment? What might you do? How many of us in the wickedness, short-sightedness of our hearts say, prove it? Most of Jesus' miracles happen right in front of you, don't they? I mean, almost every miracle you see, you get, it's like your own two eyes, seeing is believing. You get to see, you're like, oh my word, look what he did. But in this moment, Jesus just says, your daughter's well, go your way. And instead of hedging her bets, what does she do? Verse 30 tells us she goes her way. Let's put it in the simple words we use with our children. She trusts and obeys. She hears his promise, believes his promise, and she obeys what he's told her to do. This is a faith that not only confesses, it is not only a faith that professes, it's a faith that in truth is progressing. It's a faith that in other words doesn't just make a decision in the moment and then live the rest of the life the way they want. It is a faith that is living, vibrant, and active and begins to bear fruit instantly. She trusts something that any of us would find unbelievable if we saw today. She goes. And by the way, the Bible is replete with nailing to our souls this truth that if your faith is real, it will bear fruit. That's why James says faith without works is dead. It's not because your works save you. It's because a faith that lacks it is not actually faith. So praise God that there was a most unlikely of converts like this Syrophoenician woman who shows for us that faith proves there really is hope for you. If you today feel like you're a lost cause, so to speak, that you have done too much, you have gone too far, that you are, in other words, without hope. Oh, believe me. Let this story seal to your soul that with Christ there really are no such things as lost causes. If you just hear, which you've done that this moment, oh, I pray that you heard the gospel proclaimed. And I'm praying that the soil of your soul would be so enriched with desperation that that seed that was planted, the sovereign gardener, would cause it to germinate this moment. And the first thing that would sprout is not only one who hears, but one who reveres the God who has made this promise. I'm praying that that would happen for you this day. Faith hears. It reveres and then it perseveres. You cry out to God this moment and you may not hear him audibly. In fact, he doesn't do this. He doesn't talk normatively this way. But you sit in the silence and watch the Lord do what only he can do to move and work in your heart such that you will come to a place of confession and you will cry out, I am who you say I am. And then you will come to a place of profession and say, you are who you say you are. And by God's grace, you will join the fellowship of believers. And from this day forward, you who confess and you who profess will in truth progress in your faith step by step growing in grace oh I pray you hear there is hope dear friend for you if faith could be found there it could be found anywhere and my final word 
to we who have indeed tasted and seen that God is good is simply this. If there is a loved one for whom you cannot stop praying and you just keep being met with silence, my final word to you would be labor to do whatever it takes to get them to hear. Don't stop. You keep ensuring that they hear, they hear, they hear, and then pray that their hearing will lead to fearing and revering our great God. Ask that God would do a work that they get a big vision of God, not a small one, not a God that does what they want, a big God that makes demands, because that is the only type of growth that lasts. That is the only type of growth that saves. Pray, in other words, that they who hear will revere and persevere despite all the trials and tribulations that they encounter, that the silence will not stun them, will not stunt them, but it will test them and let them be found faithful. Pray that they get to a place where they will confess. I prayed so many times for lost family members that they will get so low that they'll get to a place where they have nowhere else to turn like the prodigal. Pray that they would confess and in that moment, then and then alone, can they profess that he really is who he says he is and get them into a local church, whether it's here or elsewhere, where together they can link arms and progress in this walk of faith, not with a bunch of people who think they're better than themselves, but with a bunch of people who can echo with me, thank God that he saves dogs like me. Why don't you join me as we pray? With your heads bowed as we go to the Lord in a time of commitment, if it's offensive to even think to utter the statement, praise you, O God, that you saved a dog like me, I pray that in this moment you could come to that place. That the Spirit of God would do what I cannot, and that is so move in your soul that you could confess with the Syrophoenician woman, yes, Lord, I am who you say I am. And yes, Lord, you are who you say you are. I pray this hour you would come to him. In a moment, we're going to sing, and there will be pastors, including myself down here, who want to pray with you. You come, and you come pray and talk with us. And if there is a loved one that you are pleading for this hour, now is a good time for you to cry out, You come forward. That might be a good tangible act of depending on the Lord this Lord's Day and saying, oh God, forgive me for doubting you in the silence. I am coming yet again pleading that my son or daughter, my husband or wife, my beloved family member will at last who was blind now see, who is deaf now hear, who is hardened of heart will now receive the glorious grace that I received. Oh, I pray that my family could echo with me. Praise God, he saves a dog like me. You come now as we stand and sing in a moment and you plead that God would do just that as I plead on our behalf this day. Father in heaven, I'm asking that you would so move in this room that every family represented here could not say on the final day that they did not hear. Oh, I pray that you would fill our mouths with this gospel and that we would go and plead that those whom we know and love would hear and revere and persevere and confess and profess and progress in faith. Do it in my life. Do it in the lives of those whom I so love in this room. Do it for the glory of your name, I pray. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. You stand to your feet.